Welcome to the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Christos Givnikos, pediatric gastroenterologist and aerodigestive specialist, trained in Greece and further trained in the United Kingdom, having occupied a consultancy and led service at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool, then took up, uh, <laughs> then decided that was too small a canvas for his brush. He wanted a new hospital, he wanted a new service, and frankly, having worked in the NHS myself, I can totally understand that. <laughs> he went to Dubai. He went to Dubai at the new Al Jalila Children's Hospital. And there he initiated, or for the first time ever, provided pediatric gastroenterology services. And after some six months there, working with his new colleagues, he instituted an aerodigestive program. I'm going to ask him today to tell us what he told his colleagues, our colleagues, in May 2023 at the Espigan Annual Meeting about what it was like to get that started, get it rolling, and keep it going. Christos, lovely to have you here. Thank you very much, Alex and Espigan, for inviting me on this uh, podcast. Um, in uh, this uh, annual Espigan meeting, we had the opportunity to have an aerodigestive symposium. And thanks to the scientific committee, we had uh, very nice talks about aerodigestive service. Talking from my personal experience, yes, I moved to the UK after 13 years in a brand new hospital, uh, which was set up uh, in Dubai. And that was a challenge uh, to start the service from scratch. I had a colleague with me, Dr. Anissa Dickey uh, from the US. And after six months, having a lot of complex patients with uh, multiple comorbidities, we found out there was a need for aerodigestive program. Um, as uh, I presented in my talk, the, the structure of the aerodigestive program has been published and the consensus uh, uh, on the literature. However, just in brief, uh, it's consisted for some core specialities along with other uh, adjunct specialities. The core specialities are gastroenterology, of course, pulmonology, ENT, speech and language pathologist is the US term, speech and language therapist is, is in the UK, swallowing specialists uh, in other terms, and uh, of course, uh, dietitians. Now, what we cater off is children with complex uh, comorbidities with uh, uh, lung, chest, upper GI tract, and ENT problems. Typically, we have a lot of cerebral palsy patients with unsafe swallowing, a lot of patients with esophageal atresia, rare syndromes, trisomies, uh, charge syndrome, Vactyl, uh, just to name a few. We need actually a joint uh, management and joint input for all the specialities. How do your patients come to you? Well, with all of those doors into the aerodigestive program, you get patients from everywhere being referred for what may initially seem to be a pulmonary problem, but just a rasping cough, a little bit of a not quite on the growth curve. And then that patient might be seen first 
first by a general pediatrician, and then referred to somebody in the lung field. When does that lung person say, we need crystals? Right. That, that's very good, actually, and that's a reality, because we don't have a consistent referral system, like in the UK, referring from the general practitioners, the referrals are coming directly, it may go to one speciality, but if the colleagues are aware of their digestive service, once they identify that it's not only pulmonary problem, it's very easy, uh, it just has to do a referral, drop an email, we have a, like a group email, and then we will uh, slot the patients on our clinic. Mm-hmm. How often, well, you've got a 200-bed children's hospital there right. in Dubai. What's, what are your patient numbers in the aerodigestive program, and how do they compare to the numbers in the individual components? Right. I mean, we started small. As the hospital was growing, uh, we had about five patients, ten patients per month, but now we have per clinic about seven to eight, and we run four clinics per month. And we have actually a waiting list of three months now for new referrals, and we need to triage them because the, stab- the service has been established now, is known actually even in other towns in the United Arab Emirates, and they want to also to come to see us. So that mm. comes with a lot of effort and uh, cooperation with the colleagues. We try to prioritize the referrals who need to be seen first. Um, and um, as we grow, we may have to add actually more clinics, and definitely we need a coordinator. Oh, you can't do without a coordinator. <laughs> no, that's for sure. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered? You started in a brand new hospital. Nobody had her turf already established. Nobody felt jealous about, these are my patients. I'm not going to give them up. But that might not be the case in an older hospital where where those jealousies do exist yeah you didn't encounter them no i was very lucky on the, okay but what kind the, of what kind of anecdotes have you heard from from colleagues who say to you christos i just wish i had it so easy as you had it for sure uh, i think um, most colleagues are quite sensible and the multidisciplinary uh, model of care in pediatrics um Everybody knows how many advantages it offers. And if we manage to do this in a private health system, as is down there, I think countries like the UK or most European countries who have a national health system, is much easier. Uh, of course, you may find across some personalities that may be more strong than others. Uh, but, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't encounter that uh, at all. And now on the literature, you see... Uh, multidisciplinary care is a, is a core of the, especially of uh, tertiary hospitals like a, like a children's hospital. Uh, not only aerodigestive, for example, in Aldehe, we had cardiac uh, feeding clinics, neurological feeding clinics, uh, combined uh, cystic fibrosis uh, clinics, uh, IBD clinics with uh, another psychologist, dietitian. All this, uh, I had the opportunity to implement, you know, at least some of them uh, in my practice in Algeria in this hospital. Um, of course, as you say, because the hospital was new, there was a lot of uh, time free for the, uh, for, for the doctors who were participating. Not, no free time now at all. Uh, but, um, you know, and also I have to say this, this model is more established in the USA and North America, particularly in the USA. And uh, pulmonologists and the ENT, they were from USA, along with my, my colleague, Dr. Anis Siddiqui. 
Mm. Well, my personal impression is that pediatricians tend to be among the doctors who are best at working and playing with others. Um, <laughs> adult doctors, not so much. But kid doctors tend to get along because, well, they have to. They have to take care of parents. They have to take care of patients. And they wind up learning how to take care of each other, which is a wonderful characteristic to have among colleagues. So none of these, the, the, any problems with personality clashes were not really that big a deal. Well, in that case, doesn't it surprise me, or doesn't it surprise you, that the model took root in the United States? Rugged capitalism, individualism, go out and get what you can, eat what you kill. Um, in, <laughs> what's going on in Europe that has kept this model from being wi more widely adopted and accepted here? Um, I'm not sure about this, but uh, generally speaking, medicine is different. We care about patients. Um, we don't, I, I think most colleagues, they don't look on the profit as such. And if you see, and as I, expl I explained to my talk, there are several publications that are showing that actually there is a cost effectiveness with this program. Uh, for example, starting from the parents themselves. Uh, sometimes we do forget how many visits these parents have to do to the hospital. Uh, there are studies showing that uh, saving petrol, time from work, and uh, parking fees in the hospital, uh, that saves them a lot of money. Uh, that's for the parents' point of view. The satisfaction they get by seeing all the doctors together at one setting and not losing time off of the work. But if you look also for the health system itself, you get the five different encounters, you will get the billing, but when it comes to the actual uh, scopes, as we call it, triple scope, not everybody gets triple scope, but a lot of joint procedures happening, that means less, uh, less cost for the, uh, because there is less anesthesia, instead of having three general anesthesia encounters, we have only one. Uh, that, that's saving a lot of costs, plus exposure to radiation and anesthesia for the child itself. So if you look from the published evidence, it's a, it's a quite cost-efficient uh, model of care, apart from the, all the other benefits, the clinical benefits the patients get. Well, in that respect, Christos, you're, as they say in the States, you're preaching floods to Noah. We already believe that there's going to be high water, and we're going to get out of the way, we're going to get on that ark. But Europe hasn't gotten on that ark, not to the extent, as you say, that the United States has. And I asked you a little while ago, why might that be? Why is the aerodigestive service in Europe not more widely adopted? Or have I misunderstood your comments? Uh, no, actually, I think it does happen in the, in the UK, where I have some experience, not in this particular structure. Uh, as I said, in Alde here, it's in this hospital. We had a special clinic for the cardiac uh, patients and special clinic for the neurodisabled patients. We didn't have the NT on site and the pulmonologist, but we did have the dietitian and the speech and language pathologist. It is not called aerodigestive, it may have another name, but this was established at least in Adehei more than 15, 20 years uh, yes, for my yes. predecessors and will carry on there uh, when we're, with the other consultants. So I think 
The ENT and pulmonology in particularly uh, is started in the US, but I think this model, uh, as soon as we have more publications, more awareness, uh, it, will become, uh, it will become more attractive to the clinicians because it helps patients, it helps the hospital, uh, and uh, it saves a lot of money, especially for the public health system, I would say. You've probably been asked to consult on establishing aerodigestive services, well, back where you came from, in Greece. How are things progressing there? Another, another healthcare system with which you're familiar. We can't comment on France, we can't comment on Portugal, but Greek speaks to Greek. And what about Thessaloniki? What about Athens? How are things going along there? I left a long time ago, and uh, when, I was, uh, when I left, I was an adult doctor, so all my pediatric training is from scratch in the UK. Uh, but having, uh, you know, talked with colleagues, uh, at least in the big uh, children's hospital in Athens and Thessaloniki, uh, I think it's something which is uh, feasible. It's a public health system. Uh, it just needs people to get together uh, and have the initial conversation, see the benefits of this, and, and get, get started. So it is feasible. But as I said, as I left a long time ago. I don't know the current situation back home. Well escaped. Um, I mean, from my question, not from Greece. Yes. But should the impetus then come principally from us as physicians? Should we grasp this and move ahead with it? Or should we wait for the administrators who control our budgets to say, you are going to do this? I think first it has to come to physicians, but still if the administrator is supported, like it has been in my case, okay, there was no obstruction, no obstacles, even if you have to miss one general gastroenterology clinic, instead of doing that, there was no, once we had the, submitted the business case, they saw the benefits, they saw the evidence in the literature and they accepted. Of course, this doesn't happen everywhere. And I'm lucky I work in a government hospital, so made it very difficult this to happen in a private hospital. Uh, so I'm working in a government hospital at the moment, and they support all these initiatives. The evidence is out there. The evidence in terms of patient convenience, family convenience, or sorry, risk to patients, family convenience, and, uh, well, and third-party payer convenience, whether it's the government or whether it's an insurance company. What's missing? Why isn't, I keep on asking, why isn't it universal yet? You know, in Germany, there are the Krankenkassen that pay for things um, governmental unit by governmental unit. And it may be difficult to convince the Krankenkassen or the individual hospitals to come together on this, to make it possible with enough patients to justify such a service. How many patients does it require then to justify such a service? In working up a business case, how many would you think of as a minimum required to get it going? I think uh, even 10 to start uh, is, is a starting point because once you establish the service like it happens with us, I told you the progression of our cohort, uh, and you have good outcomes and uh, patient satisfaction, the patterns themselves also they spread, the, they spread the word of mouth. Uh, then the clinicians who are referring to you, plus your colleagues, and then 
it took us a while. I mean, I don't say everything was uh, rosy, you know, at the beginning to, to start the service. But once everybody saw that the patients are satisfied and have good outcomes, they, they, then they start referring patients. And now after five years, we have almost two to three months uh, waiting list for, for a new patient. So um, it's just a matter uh, sometimes of uh, interpersonal skills between various disciplines. Um, doctors who have big egos sometimes, um, and this can be a hindering factor, uh, as you may have come across. Uh, but I think collaboration, uh, understanding, and good, uh, good interpersonal skills, it does help on this. You start then... Let me, let me rephrase that. What be, where it starts then is with the primary care provider's referral to not an area digestive service, but to a component of that service, and then the recognition by the person providing the pulmonary, the pulmonary care, the gastrointestinal care, the neurologic care, that something is wrong with more than one system and that multidisciplinary care is required. Is there any way that you can recommend for boosting that kind of consciousness among the referring population so that they're happy to have their patients taken care of at an aerodigestive center? Yes, there are ways, apart from marketing, with uh, posters and uh, flyers, uh, which we have emailed. It's also to start with the hospital. You, uh, we arranged to have grand round in the hospital, presenting the service and the benefits. And then at least for the government facilities who can refer to us online, it is there as a referral on the EPR, on the Electronic Patient Record System, to refer to the aerodigestive service. Of course, we triage the referral, and the, during the referral, there could be also criteria there when to refer. But I have to say, most of our most of our referrals are coming from the hospital itself. Once they, because now the service is known, and once one colleague from another discipline identifies there is a need for a digestive, all it does is just have to send us an email, and then things are much quicker. The external referrals they take a little bit longer. Thank you. Practice as a physician, as a gastroenterologist, then changed. Since you took over, the, since you became an aerodigestive gastroenterologist, what aspects? Well, what have you learned in carrying out this work? Say from your colleagues, whether medical, whether medically trained, or whether in the ancillary services. Right. I think this is one of the beauty uh, beauties of the running multidisciplinary care is you learn a lot from your colleagues uh, because we sit in the same setting uh, and. Uh, a lot of things, uh, for example, just to mention one I was not very much aware before, was the laryngopharyngeal reflux with the Indy colleagues. They, they took some time to, um, to understand the importance of this and the relation with the gastroesophageal reflux, which uh, uh, often, you know, gastroenterologists would deal with. The other thing is we learn so much from the allied health professionals. Even in ALDH in this hospital, when I was running the cardiac and neuro neurological uh, feeding clinics, I was learning so much from the speech and language therapists. Uh, things I was not so much trained about this, and uh, the, the, the various tips they use for the parents, how to thicken the feeds, how to assess the patient, what clues are there. 
Uh, I think this is this is a unique opportunity in the multidisciplinary setting to learn not only from the other doctors and specialists, and I gave some examples, but also from the allied health professionals. That may be one of the more important things. I'm not saying the most important thing, but one of the more important things for listeners to take away from this talk that you've given us today. The necessity and the beauty of learning from humility and from our colleagues. Well, I'm going to be very frank with you now, and I'm, I'm not sure that Greeks as a race, as a nation, are particularly associated with humility. They're, they're a proud people. <laughs> and I wonder if in choosing the song that you're going to give us with which to end this uh, podcast, I wonder what aspect of Greek character it's going to reflect or show forth. Have you got a song ready for us? Yes, I have one, and everybody knows it. It's Sirtaki from Zorba. We are joyful people, and this brings a lot of joy and dancing. Dancing. Well, you have humility and dancing. Let's listen, and let's get back to you. like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Whoa! <laughs> well, I'd have to be, I don't know if I'd be humble or proud to take on a dance, to take on that song, but it would be different. Thank you again. Thank you very much. <laughs>